right, so why we wait? No one particularly enjoys waiting rooms. By a show of hands, who, who would rather go on a beautiful hike to see a beautiful waterfall or sit in a waiting room? All right, who would rather sit in a waiting room than like, you know, just no one? So John David Scott. I had JD when he was eight years old. He hasn't changed. He's always causing trouble. So yeah, so I mean, no one prefers a waiting room. And it's just, it's just, it, it's, they're terrible. I mean, white tiles on the floor, fluorescent lights, right? Along faces that's staring into no place. And so yeah, just no one, no one enjoys waiting rooms. So there's waiting rooms and then there's waiting rooms. There's a waiting room right outside the intensive care unit, the ICU, that is particularly bad. I've been in my share, my fair share of intensive care unit waiting rooms, sitting next to friends or even family, and none of them have been pleasant because we know what's on the other side of those doors or what's on the other side of that wall, right? Um, the worst waiting room, of course, um, happened in 1996. I was a senior in high school. It was second or third period, somewhere in there, and you remember the old intercom system. And so um, I wasn't a particularly bad kid, so it was a little bit shocking to hear my name come over the intercom system. Hey, Spencer, Teal, you need to come to the office. So I make my way to the office, and there was a familiar face, not a real familiar face, but a familiar face there in the office. I could tell in his face something was wrong, and he puts his arm around me. He says, hey, um, we're going to check you out of school. Uh, you and your sister, something's happened to your dad. Um, he's had a heart attack. He's actually at the hospital about to go into surgery. Um, so we run, you know, of course, off campus. We, we get to the hospital, and when we arrive, I mean, there's, there's really just, just a waiting room. You know, you haven't seen him. All you can see is your mom, and you're just sitting there. And there's all kinds of emotions. And as a you know, 17, 18-year-old, you you're not able to compute exactly what's going on. But the one thing that is very clear is some kind of discomfort and some kind of pain. And there was no comfort to really kind of help your mom in that scenario. It's in those moments, in those waiting rooms, where, you know, minutes, you know, kind of feel like hours, right? And hours feel like days, and all you're doing is waiting. And everyone in, this, in that room has the exact same thing going on, is that we don't know if that person is going to make it, because there's something serious enough for you to be in that room. And so whether it's a mom or a dad, a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter, we're just not sure, and all we can do is wait. Wait and see, because we really don't know. Is there a way, or is it possible for waiting, just this idea of waiting, is there any way that waiting is actually good for us? Could waiting actually be a part of God's plan? Could waiting, right, and that whatever happens in that gap without any resolution whatsoever, and there's no resolve, that in that space, could that be actually the way that God teaches us a lesson that we could never learn any way else? Waiting is really, really hard for us. And we believe, we really do believe 
that waiting is good for us and can be good for us and can be a very spiritual endeavor in which God gets our attention and leads us to a place that we cannot be. And so what we're doing this season for Advent, for Christmas, is to invite you into that wait, to invite you into something. Because if there's something good or if there's something that we can learn, then we want to bring it on no matter how uncomfortable that can be. So, in fact, um, speaking of Christmas, uh, the very topic of Christmas is the fact that you and I, whether we know it or not, we are in a tradition that do not, that does not celebrate Christmas as a day. We celebrate Christmas as a season, all right? From the fifth century on, I mean, that is over a thousand years, Christians all over the world have gathered and celebrated a Christmas season, not a Christmas day. And that season has been called Advent, A-D-V-E-N-T, Advent. Advent is Latin for the word arrival, all right? And so you guessed it. So this Advent season is arrival, is this anticipation that something is about to come. So Christmas in its very nature is about waiting. It's about a space. It's about something that's incomplete where all of us are posturing ourselves looking for an arrival of someone for the early, early church father, or early fathers of our faith, Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah, they were all looking forward to the anticipation that the Messiah would come. And now for 2000 years, Christians all over the world have stopped, postured ourselves to look for what? The arrival of the King. And so as we step into Christmas, as we step into this Advent season, this anticipation of the Messiah, we don't look for a baby anymore. We look for King Jesus to come toward us. Christmas truly is about waiting. It's about this space where you're not sure exactly how or when it's going to resolve, but in your heart and in your mind, you really do believe that it will happen. There's a story, all kinds of stories in the scriptures about waiting. This Christmas season, we're gonna tackle four of them. Today, we're gonna to talk about this, this story that's in Genesis chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 12. We've given you a cheat sheet on your worship guide. So if you just wanna reference that, that's okay. But we would really encourage you this morning to follow along in this story. So Genesis chapter 12, we get introduced to this man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now, for the technical out there, I know that mid, midway through the story, Abram gets his name changed to Abraham and Sarai gets her name changed to Sarah. For simplicity's sake, we're just going to call him Abraham and Sarah if that's okay with you guys. Okay, makes sense? All right, so Abraham and Sarah, also known as Abram and Sarai, don't get confused, same people, just on a journey like all of us, right? So in Genesis chapter 12, we meet this middle-aged man. He's 75 years old. Now, you think that that guy's retired. He's about to get his remote and his lazy boy, right? So he's just, he's ready to just cruise. However, Abraham lives to 175, right? He lives a long time, right? You thought Bruce Colson was old. I mean, just, I mean, just add another 100 years to that guy, right? I mean, think about, all right? So he's 75, and so that's probably middle-aged, right? 
So that's about the middle of his life, so give or take. So this guy was thinking midlife crisis, right? Instead of like a lazy boy, he was thinking about a convertible or he's thinking about, you know, changing careers or something. So this is, this is about where Abraham is. And God steps into Abraham's story and he says, Abraham, now this is in antiquity where the household of God and the household of just this Eastern culture is the most important. God enters into Abraham's story and he says, Abraham, I want you to move. I want you to get up and settle someplace else. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your hometown. I want you to leave your land. I'm going to take you someplace else. So in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, yes, that's six chapters. I know what you're thinking. Spencer, you can't preach six verses in 45 minutes. How are we going to do six chapters? By doing broad strokes. So in those six chapters, 12 to 17, what we see in Abraham's life is just absolutely tumultuous. I mean, it is just insane. We see some unbelievable high points. We see some unbelievable victories, but then we also see him squandering things, and we see some horrific actions. And so we see both sin, and then we see faith, and then we see obedience, and then we see absolute just disobedience. We see someone who is honorable, and then someone who will lie. And so Abraham's life is just up and down, and up and down, and up and down. But despite Abraham's story that looks like this. God is the consistent one. God's trajectory is solid and strong and good. The Advent season, if it's about waiting, cannot be about Abraham and his story. It's got to be about God and God's story, right? So think about if you're going hiking and you're going to Laurel Fort Falls and you're leaving, you're in Hampton and you're going up to Dennis Cove right? That switchback and that up and down, that's Abraham's life. And God is more like just a consistent arrow that just continues to move forward and on and on and on. So the best part of Abraham's story is not Abraham. The best part of Abraham's story is God himself. Not just God, but God's promises. God makes promise after promise after promise after promise after promise, i.e., look at the cheat sheet. And you're going to see some of these just fill in the blanks over and over and over. We hear him say it. And so this morning, we're actually going to look at 16 different promises of God. I know it sounds like a lot, but we're just going to breeze through. But 16 different times in six chapters when God enters into Abraham's story with, the one, with one simple phrase, I will. Okay? I will. So the point number one, if you are a note taker, point number one is this, that many of God's promises are futuristic. Many of God's uh, uh, promises sound like I will meaning that they are built for another place, right? Meaning that they're built for the future. Meaning that there is going to be some time that will elapse before that completion actually comes true. Meaning that to understand God's promises properly, we're going to have to, we're going to have to Wait, that's right. And so to understand God's promises correctly, we're going to have to Wait, 
Guess what the theme for the next four weeks are? To wait. And what is waiting? It's good for us. It really is good for us. All right, so let's walk into these, these, uh, th- these passages. So uh, picking up uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abram, also name is, his name is Abraham, go from your country and, and your kinsmen, right? Or your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, all right? We won't spend all kinds of time talking about these things, but there's the kind of your first kind of like tip. There's the first like tip of the iceberg that there's, God is about to walk into Abraham's life with the promise, I will. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, you are going to go into the land that I will show you. That's the first blank, that I will show you. You're going to leave your land. You're going to leave your family. You're going to leave everything that's comfortable, and you're going to go somewhere else. And guess what? You don't know where you're going. I'm going to have to actually lead the way. And so step by step by step, you are going to have to follow my words. You're going to have to actually follow my direction, and I'm not going to show you any farther than what you really need. This is kind of the relationship that God has with his people. You keep going in chapter 2. It says that I will make you a great nation. That's a pretty strong promise, right? None of us can like hold on to that kind of promise. God enters into Abraham's life when there's just two of them, Abraham and Sarah. And he says, by the way, coming from you, there will be a great nation. That's an unbelievable promise for a guy that's mid-aged, right? Who's 75 years old. You go on another verse, verse 2, and it says, I will bless you. There's been a time in your life where you have been generic. There's been a time in your life where you were just another speck on on the planet. But today, I want you to know that I will bless you, Abraham. There is something special in you, and I'm going to make you great. You keep going on, and there's this, this reverberation out of Abraham's life. So God is blessing Abraham, and then look in verse 3. It says, I will bless those who bless you. And so this, this radiance is that now there's some kind of energy and some kind of just, just this rhythm where, where Abraham gets blessed by others. God will then like envelop them into the story of God. And so those people that are blessing Abraham, he will, God will actually bless. In the same way, those, I will curse those who dishonor you. And so this just outward motion continues to happen, not just in Abraham's life, but the people that he inter- interacts with. This is unbelievable stuff. We may have read it over and over, but just feel the, just the, the, the heaviness of this. Continue in verse 7, Okay. And there's, there's some things that go on, but in verse 7 it says, I will give this land to you. So I'm going, I want you to go, and I want you to go to a land, and I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be a gift. You don't have to pay for it. It's just going to be from me to you, and there's going to be a lot of it. This is a gift from God to Abraham. Now go a full chapter, right? Chapter uh, 13, verse 16, and the same mantra gets picked up. The idea that I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So Abraham has been blessed, right? Those people that are surrounding Abraham or or dishonoring him are now going to have some kind of interaction with God. 
Then there's this idea of land, that there's actual soil on the ground, and there's actually a place on planet Earth that will be blessed by God himself through Abraham. So not just Abraham and the people that surround him, not just the land, but it just continues to grow, that I'm going to make your offspring as the dust of the earth. A middle-aged man being promised progeny, being promised all kinds of children and grandchildren, and they're just going to continue to be numerous upon numerous. You go to one beach, you pick up one cup of sand, and you pour it out one granular at a time, and you will be overwhelmed, much less the dust or the sand of the earth. This is one great big promise. And then I'm going to give you this land again. What God is doing to Abraham is changing his life and changing the trajectory of his life forever. And so how do you and I wait? How do you and I enter into this kind of relationship with waiting? When God's promises look so futuristic, I will, I will, I will, there's not much to prove here. How do you and I kind of wrestle with that? How do you and I wait? Well, there's this, this hinge point of the story. I will, I will, I will, I will eight times. And there's other promises. I just picked out the promises that started with I will because, you know, it'd be easier for you guys to remember. There's a lot more in there. But move on to 15.6, the hinge point of the story. After all of these, like all of this story of highs and lows, but this consistent refrain of I will, Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 6, says this, And he believed the Lord. And Abraham believed the Lord. So how do we wait? We believe that God will do what he says he will do. We believe that God is who he says he is. We believe what God says about himself. And we must rest in what God has said, both about us and about himself. We simply, this I will God, we simply put our trust and faith in what he says, even when we live in that the, the promise may look so futuristic. Abraham, at this point in the story, just has no problem posturing and says, I believe him. I believe in God. So far, so good, right? Right? We're already up to chapter 15. So far, so good. Hang on. It gets worse. Because we stink. You and I, we stink at waiting, don't we? I mean, we would rather do anything but wait. And we're not talking about just waiting rooms here. We're just talking about life we want everything right now. And so there's an entire business industry right now being built to eliminate the weight, all right? They're trying to do everything to appease your irrational, like bent toward need it now. Like there are people out there who are like in quantum physics and like master magician people that are out there trying to get your money to eliminate the gap between what you want and what you can see. Thus, Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, six years ago, came out with this idea that if you gave them nine bucks a month, in two days, you will be able to believe what you see, right? And so in two days, you could have whatever you want. A couch, it'll show up. A pacifier, it'll show up. In two days, it'll show up. That was six years ago. 
Today, there are these people that are trying to get it to your doorstep that day, if not that hour. Last year, there was a, a lady in New York City that bought a baby doll on Christmas Eve and had it to her, her doorstep in a little over an hour. We can't stand to wait. We want it gone, right? There's three beautiful words that have entered into every parent or college student's life that is so glorious, it just makes you drool, hot and ready, right? You just walk into and it's there and you're like, I've got five bucks. I mean, for all of this terrible garbage, I mean, but it's so fast and it's there and you can feed it to your children and they won't even know that it's bad for them. You just keep going and you just keep paying it. It's just over and over and over. Then there's these text messages, right? And these Marco Polos and they're just coming at you so fast. And if three minutes goes by without some kind of reply, you start getting self-conscious. You're like, did I say it right? Did I use the wrong emoji? I'm not sure. What if they're mad at me? Maybe we're going to break up. Ah, it's only been three minutes, people. It's okay. And so there's this idea that this waiting is like just, I mean, your heart is like bleeding out of, I need it now. And so we stink at waiting, right? You and I, and so did Abraham. Abraham equally hated to wait. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I believe. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I believe. I mean, Abraham had it because there's a tension here. There's a tension. At 75, Abraham gets the promise. This is going to happen. 11 years has passed. Abraham is now 86. And it's just been too long. I can't stand it any longer. I know that some of you are eagerly waiting. You've, you've applied for the job. You killed the references. You were on point during the interview. And there's, just, there's a lull. And you're not real sure what to do with that. Some of you have had some pretty serious tests medical tests, run. Maybe it's been an MRI or some kind of thing. And there's been some space and you just, it's, it's just too much. Some of you, like Abraham, 11 years has passed by. And that daughter or that son of yours has still continued to walk away from you or walk away from faith with no promise to ever come back. We stink at waiting, and so did Abraham. And so point number two is just that, that we really do stink <laughs> at waiting. And so in one chapter, from 15.6, and Abraham believed the Lord, if you're in your scriptures, flip to 16.2, in one little chapter, and what we don't know is that in that one chapter, now 11 years has passed by. And one little chapter, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. There's a second side of Abraham and Abraham's story. Because there's a second side to your my story. And so what happened? What happened? 
the major points of Abram and this promise is this idea that land was going to come, that Abraham was going to be blessed, and the fact that they were going to have a son. They were going to be a great nation. And so 11 years has passed, and the land may have come and gone, and maybe he's seen some blessing. But this idea that he's going to be a great nation, and it's going to come through his sons, that just hasn't happened. The fact is that 11 years has come and gone, and there's just no way that it has happened. Abraham is getting old, er, and so is Sarah, and time is running out, and there's not one child to speak of, much less a whole nation of children. And so what Abraham and Sarah do, they do the logical thing. After 11 years has passed and you still haven't seen anything, they do the logical thing and they take their lives and they take God's promises that belongs to God and they take it into their own hands. They take what belongs to God and they hold on to it and they take it themselves. There's a promise. There's a nation. There's a people. And Abraham's like, I know. You said, I will, I will, I will, I will. Sure, but prove it. There's nothing to prove and we're just getting older. There is no son to speak of. There's not going to be a nation. I'm almost tired of the promises because there's no fulfillment of that. And so what is happening is not happening fast enough. And there's no proof that the promise will ever happen and will never be fulfilled. And if this is not going to happen, then that means that God will never come through. And what they do is what we do. And we take things in, into our own hands. Their life looks like this. They stink at waiting. And so do we. So if the first point is God come and comes with promises that look so futuristic, and sometimes there's a time stamp on those promises and we just get anxious and we just, we just can't wait to, to uh, wait any longer. Point number three is that after a season of faith and after a season of disbelief and even after a season of grandiose and grievous sins, a season of making a mockery out of who God is and what he promises. What do we get? If Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I believe. And then Abram shifts away from God towards Sarah or towards something else. What do we get? We get one of these from God. Cross in the arms, cocked chin, kind of the stare stare you give your kids when they don't listen? One of these. What do we get from the Lord? What we get is not what we deserve. What we get is the character of God, not our character. What rests in this story is not Abraham, but what rests in this story is the very character of God. What we get is not what we need, or is what we need. It's not, we don't get what we deserve. What we get is God's confidence and his patience and his surety. And what we get are eight more I will statements. Point number three is what we need to sustain us in our waiting 
is a steadfast belief that God will do what he says he will do. That they are God's promises first. He is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And so this last portion of of scripture here in, in chapter 17 You're going to see eight more statements that are even more personal and more extravagant than the first eight. I would encourage you just to put the two lists together and just look. Like what happens after disobedience is more extravagant. There's more grace. There's more patience. There's more of God in his story. The story of humanity does not rest on you and I. The story of humanity rests on God and what he promises to us. We don't get any of this unless it first originates in God himself, not on us. It's his character. It's his patience. The promises belong to him. It's the origin before it comes to us. And oftentimes we get those things reversed. Verse seven, or chapter 17, verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He uses the word exceedingly there. Continuing on in 17.6, I will make you into nations and kings. He adds, not just the dust of the earth, he uses extravagantly or exceedingly. Now he adds to nations, he adds the word kings, which is amazing. One more verse down, 17.7 says, I will establish my covenant between you and me. It's going to be relational and there's nothing that can break this bond. That's the power of covenant. The covenant is not present tense. A covenant always is future tense. It's who I will be, and you can count on me. And this is what, what God is bringing into this, a relationship now. I'm going to give you and your offspring this land. And here's what's amazing. The blessing carries on from Abraham, 1716. I will bless Sarah. The two people, the most disobedient in our story, Abraham and Sarah, And he says, God says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless her. And I'm going, I am, I will give her a son. I will bless her and she, and she shall become a nation and kings of people will come from her. The same thing that will have the promise of Abraham is now given to Sarah and the linchpin that I will give her a son comes in 1721. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Let's not forget, Isaac hasn't even been born yet. God's promises often look futuristic. God is faithful even in our faithlessness. And he keeps his promises even when we break ours. The hinge of the story, the narrative of the good news that God has given us, the hinge is not us and our character. We are fallen. We have a fallen condition. We always run. We hide. We disapprove. And yet God is faithful and continues to offer us good things that we do not deserve. Here we are, six to 8,000 years later, give or take. And the nation of Israel was established. The land was given to them. And this idea that Isaac became the father of 12 sons and the 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel of which the Messiah came out of the tribe of Judah. 
the line of Jesus, our Messiah, came through this covenant with Abraham. God fulfills his promises, whether we like it or not, whether we are on board or not. The way that we wait, the reason how we wait is to believe in God's promises over and over and over. The question for you and I is this. Is there enough proof in these six chapters how God was faithful? And we look at it, we're like, yeah, that's an amazing story. Is there enough evidence to turn your heart from the evidence to say God is faithful? It's easy to look back. It's hard to be more present tense and future tense. The theme of our Advent series is called Same. Because we believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we want you, and we want us as a people group to, to memorize and to repeat that mantra to ourselves. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is. Jesus is. And he will never change. And everything that he promised to us will come to, will come to completion. And so every week, we'll not just come with a past narrative of how God was faithful. We're actually going to bring in a promise to you that is very futuristic. It looks like a fulfillment of the promise is coming in the future. And so we want you to turn or want you to look at Matthew 24, 14. It says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Chapter 24, verse 14 of Matthew says this, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Has Jesus come back yet? No. And so there's still preaching to do. Preaching to all nations. And so right now we are in the same place. We are awaiting the king. We're awaiting his arrival. And it's our job to be active in our waiting. And their activity is to preach. Our activity is to speak. Our activity is to herald the good news of Jesus to every tribe and tongue and nation. This should be our impetus. This should be our power is that we are a missionary people who speak out. We give out. We bless others. And this is what we do while we wait. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world. And then the end will come. Jesus promises three things in, the, in his gospels. He says, I will make you fishers of men. He's going to do it. He's building in our hearts right now a heart for being a missionary people. Before he leaves, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will be with you always. So I will make you fishers of men. You're going to be a missionary people. You're just going to love missions. You're going to just be outward. But how do you go? I'll never, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always. The I will character of God is the same I will character of Jesus. And so here's our waiting room. 
or we wait. Man, we don't know what's on the other side of the door or on the other side of the wall. We have two choices. Chapter 15, verse 6, or chapter 16, verse 2. Either to believe in God or to listen to another voice. This Christmas season, we're going to try to convince our hearts and our minds and our neighbors and our coworkers and our city that Jesus is worth the wait. He will fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the consistent one in our relationship. And forgive us our impatience. We so quickly want the things that you promise right now. And sometimes in fits of rage, rage or seasons of disobedience hinges on the fact that we have just walked away from the promise of God because you've just not come through. And this morning we now understand that maybe coming through is in your timing, in your space, in your will. This morning, I pray for a great repentance of your people. How impatient we are and how quickly we have run to another voice. Help us this Christmas season to look, to be active in our waiting, to trust you, to believe in you. Jesus, I pray that you are working in all of our hearts. But sometimes you are working particularly in some people's hearts more than others. So Jesus, I pray that we are receptive. Receptive to you and receptive to your promises this morning. Jesus says, I have gone to prepare a place for you. And I will come back. Jesus, as we take this meal, we do it in remembrance of you, in belief that you will come back and make everything right and right every wrong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the communion table where we do. We look back at what Jesus has done for us. We look at this bread and we look at this cup and we understand the symbolism that's here. And the symbolism is not in our effort. The symbolism is in Jesus' effort. Some of you in here may be Abraham and just may just be off the charts, just disobedient. And maybe today is a day where you come back to Jesus. You come and you trust Jesus for what he has said about you, not what is true of you. He's already saying, I'm calling you to yourself. However the Lord is wrestling with you personally, just know that we have some uh, men and women in the back that long to pray for you and to walk into a moment who want, if you want healing, if you want to understand forgiveness, if you just need prayer, we would encourage you to, to go to our prayer corner and, and, and ask others to pray for you. Because as we reflect on these things, we cannot forget that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And in his giving, it looked like separation. 
And in his pouring out, it looked like death. Jesus Christ gladly, gladly went to brokenness and to death to bring us to a table, to welcome us into a family. As we partake in this this communion table this morning, just know that the, the table is open, the prayer corner is open, or you may just need to sit there and just talk with Jesus. Any of those responses are, are, are very appropriate and would be good. And so we have men in all four corners, and I'll be up here. So take at your leisure. These, these stations are open. So go ahead and stand. If you're new to Redstone, uh, you're going to see little pockets of, of believers just kind of huddling up around this meal. Uh, we do this because um, we want to all respond. We all want to like come to the altar and respond to Jesus in appropriate ways. And sometimes we have community group leaders leading prayers and we have fathers leading prayers or we just have an amalgamation of people just leading prayers in groups of people. And so uh, if you want to, feel free to, to join into one of these circles. These men are here to serve you communion. Take at your leisure. Uh, the stations are now open.